This is AutoLine Extra, available exclusively on the Internet. Here again is John McElroy. We get a, a greetings, Mr. Stevens, from across the Atlantic, from Harlem, the Netherlands. And it says, Sir, to me, personal transportation is everything between riding a bicycle or moped and taking the bus or train. Does GM have any plans to explore what he has in quotes, less obvious modes of transportation, that is to say, besides four-wheel automobiles, and that comes from uh, Ralph Penheisen from GM Insider News. Uh, the answer is yes. We are going to do that, and we tried to show that. Uh, in fact, Larry Burns, I believe, had, uh, had a nice showing of it with a vehicle we call Puma, which uh, we worked with uh, Segway to come up with a vehicle that was two-wheel. And it would sit there and balance itself and be a much smaller, much lighter uh, electric vehicle. But are you going to make it? Is it going to be going into production? uh, There are no plans at this point to go into production. But the fact that we're developing these kind of things, we're working with them, we're exploring smaller, lighter vehicles, I think is very important. The second very important thing is that it's electric and that uh, we have all different dimensions of electric vehicles that we continue to work on. In fact, the electrification of the automobile is one part of our... uh, you might call it our advanced propulsion technology strategy. It starts out with a simple hybrid, uh, like our belt alternator starter, goes to more complex, like the two mode, all the way up to plug-in hybrid electric vehicles where you use larger batteries and, and a lot of uh, electrical assist. Hybrids are nothing more than running mechanically off of the engine and having an assist from the electric motors. Then you transition out of that where you go to electric vehicles and there we have an extended range electric vehicle which is our Volt as well as we're looking at a battery electric vehicle and then all the way quite frankly to a fuel cell vehicle which is also an electric vehicle. So we have an entire array or portfolio of electric vehicles we're looking at uh, for production um, and uh, others as well that we just talked about that we're just exploring. Chubby, you think uh, these alternative modes of transportation are going to catch on? No, I'm not talking about electrification. I'm talking about maybe non-four-wheel vehicles. Or well, it's uh, it, it all it's all going to depend on the price of fuel because uh, there's a fellow whose name uh, escapes me now, but he's just written a book about the future of the country where he posits that uh, crude oil is going to get very expensive, gasoline is going to get $10 a gallon, and that the suburbs are going to be full of empty McMansions because people aren't going to be able to afford to commute. It strikes me that if we ever see a scenario that even approaches that, before people give up their McMansions, they may just downsize their vehicles and figure out a way to commute in a more efficient mode. And whether that's just a much smaller four-wheeler or whether it's a motorcycle or an enclosed motorcycle or something like a Puma, uh, it's hard to say. But I think there's a lot of those types of vehicles that people are ready to cook up if there's ever a demand for it. Yeah, but I think we need to look beyond just the energy efficiency part of it and and really think about energy diversity. Even in the very near term, by going from conventional petroleum to alternative fuels like renewables, ethanol, E85 is what we're, uh, we're going to make half of our fleet run on E85 by 2012. Uh, biodiesel, going from B5, trying to work your way up to, uh, to B20. In some countries, compressed natural gas or liquid petroleum gas is also very important because they have a lot of it. Then you get into what we just talked about, the electrification. But we need to be thinking about all of those things because they reduce our dependence on foreign or on oil. And I think that's very important that we reduce our dependence on oil. We're 90 
96% dependent today. And that does not sound like sustainable mobility to me. I think we need to start with the way demand is going for energy and the way supply is. I think we need to bring all sources of energy to bear on mobility. That makes a lot of sense. I would say two comments. One on the ethanol and, uh, you know, there's some, I don't think there's too much disagreement about it. Corn ethanol isn't such a great solution. The, uh, the, the grassoline solution uh, or the, uh, you know, the, the, the switchgrass type of thing has a huge amount of promise. Municipal or waste. Algae. Or algae. I, I, Could I'm, even be more promising. Municipal waste. Yeah. Well, Anything uh, containing carbon. Well, the, the, the problem is that a lot of this stuff gets thrown out there. I'm not sure we're spending enough money to actually research and advance those proposals because that, to me, would be an ideal use of some of the stimulus money because it's to the benefit of the country as a whole. We really need that. The other thing that surprises me a little bit is that there isn't more push to natural gas vehicles in the United States because the price of natural gas, I mean, hit like a 10-year low a couple of uh, months ago. Uh, there's been huge new discoveries, even in North America, and it seems like we ought to be doing more compressed natural gas. It's a technology that the car companies understand. The distribution infrastructure exists. It's a very, very easy thing to do compared to many of the alternatives, so it, why aren't we doing more of that? Well, in fact, we, we've got a phone call coming in just about that from John Farrell from Westchester, Pennsylvania. And ben, can we, can we bring that phone call in now? You were talking about how it was going to take a while for the Volt to become economical and it would have to go into the number of generations of vehicles before the price of the batteries came down. You guys make natural gas vehicles in Singapore. Wouldn't it make sense to hedge your bets and to have something in between gasoline and coal-powered electric and design that into your product line? Wouldn't it be interesting to have General Motors participate in the infrastructure programs that develop natural gas filling stations along with battery recharging stations? I would say that uh, General Motors, again, being a global country or <laughs> global company, we are doing just that. Uh, if you look around the world, we have a lot of, as you mentioned, compressed natural gas, liquid petroleum gas activity going on. We also have... You know, like I said, the, the renewables with, uh, with ethanol and with, uh, with biodiesel. So we have all of that very near-term activity going on, and, uh, and it does work with all of our conventional powertrains. Beyond that, though, we also feel that you need the electrification of the automobile uh, because it brings into, uh, into play uh, wind, uh, solar, hydro, nuclear, even clean coal. So there's, there's so many different energy sources. So uh, our advanced propulsion technology strategy looks at all of this energy diversity. And then my job is to put in place a very robust portfolio of vehicles that's able to, in fact, accommodate all of that. And as we can make business cases, bring them country by country to, uh, to our customers. And that's, uh, that's the approach that we've been taking. John, you think uh, CNG is ever going to catch on? Well, I was going to ask that question. I mean, specifically, what is the prospect for CNG in the U.S. as it stands right now? What is the barrier standing in the way for getting more? Because I get, I get letters all the time, and they're over my head. Customers about, don't want right. it. I mean, you guys all offered it. Chrysler, Ford offered Honda, it. Honda tried. No, no, Honda's offering it, and my understanding is they're sold out. Oh, come on, Chubba, look at the numbers. They, uh, number one, you spend, I don't think they're selling very many. 
they, you can only buy them in three states. They sell fewer than 1000 a year. You pay $7,000 above the price of a normal gasoline Civic to get it. You spend another 5000 to get that fill thing in your garage when you could get it. My understanding is they dropped it. It's just a bunch of malarkey. People don't buy these things. Right. Uh, and I think that that's going to hold it back to some extent, although there are countries where uh, the infrastructure is being put in place and it can go. But th the point I would make is that uh, we are working with, as an example, Cascada and Muscoma. And in fact, right now... For cellulosic ethanol. For cellulosic right. ethanol. Where is it, though, Tom? I mean, and you know, two years ago, everyone said it'd be here, and I haven't seen any well, no, cellulosic. No, we, we laid out a timetable, and we're currently in the process of putting the pilot plants in place. Um, we said that we were going to be between a, a buck and a buck and a half a gallon for cost, and that is where we're falling right now. And so I think we are rolling out just what we said we'd roll out, and it's looking quite favorable. But and is, so, is all this just as a, far as I'm concerned, near term, that that might uh, economically make a better business case for our customers than some of these others in, in, in the U.S. A like buck, a buck and a half, man. I'll, I'll buy but E85 that, all day long. That's the cost. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. You'll okay, have, you'll have a, up a bit. Yeah, still, you'll have to distribute it good. and whatnot. But the, but the fact of the matter is it's a viable fuel to get us off of conventional oil. But the, the price of conventional oil, the price of a, of a gallon of gasoline, is still relatively low. We were having much more robust discussions around these technologies a year ago, year and a half ago when when gas was at four dollars a gallon. I mean, it the, is relatively it low. But what happens when the we come out of the global recession? Uh, if you look at even uh, Department of Energy data, it would say that the energy demands are going up about two percent per year and have been since 2003. Um, I think they were saying it was like um, 200 million barrels a day of oil equivalent in 2003, going up to about 340 and. Uh, you know, I think it was 2030. But, and but, so, but we are seeing some. So with it going up like that, in my opinion, the demand is going to outstrip our capability to, do, to uh, provide conventional petroleum, which will drive the price way high. And you don't have to have the price go that much higher when some of these other alternatives make business sense. Right. But there, there, there are some counteracting effects. Uh, when the price of oil went up, all of a sudden, a lot of the oil companies start doing some more drilling, and they go to uh, more, somewhat more expensive, but more complicated sources. Last week, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal where I think it was BP discovered oil off the coast of Africa, and it was in water that was five or 7,000 feet deep, and then they had to drill down a ways. So it's clearly not the cheapest oil in the world, but at $70 a barrel, it actually starts paying off. Uh, we've got the big oil finds off of Brazil. Uh, somebody found uh, oil, again, deep wells in the Gulf of Mexico. Mexico. And it's almost like a repeat of the early 80s when we saw the price of uh, oil skyrocket. Yeah. And in, yeah. in truth, for old guys, old guys like us remember hearing all the same stuff. The era of cheap oil is over, you know, or the earth's running out of it, you know, the demand's going to outstrip the supply. And next thing you know, the high prices brought on enough more supply that it was followed by 25 years of cheap oil. Now, I'm not predicting that again, but you can't totally discount that a certain amount of that effect's going to take place. And that doesn't argue against alternatives, but this notion of $400 a barrel oil is absolutely dead certain five years from now. I think that notion's insane, you know, myself. Yeah, I would, I would be uh, down more at the $130, uh, $140 a barrel level. And whenever you look at forecasts for oil, they're, they're this wide. You know, so, so who really knows? But I do think it's, uh, if you're in this business, 
to think that it's okay to be 96% dependent on a single energy source doesn't make sense. And so I think it's incumbent on people like me to make sure that we don't have to be and come out with alternatives that are very cost effective. And so that's what we're trying to do. One last question on this. You mentioned that the Honda CNG vehicle is a $7,000 increment. I was under the impression that converting a, a, a conventional powertrain to run on CNG is not terribly difficult. Does this have to be a $7,000 increment if you do it in any volume? Well, uh, on, uh, on compressed natural gas, probably the, the modifications to the engine are not that expensive, but I would say that the modifications to, uh, of the, the cylinder, the, the storage unit, whatever it is, that has to hold, what is it, like 3,000 PSI yeah, for right. compressed and natural gas? And all safety standards. And, and then, that's where it gets That's exactly where I was going. I'm sorry, Tom. Yeah. I should let yeah. the expert yeah. talk about no, it. No, no, no. <laughs> this is nice. Maybe I can start asking the questions. <laughs> hey, Chris Terry from Facebook writes in to say, ask Tom about the upper limit performance of the 1.4 liter turbo that's going to be going in the cruise, I believe, right? Or is that in the Spark? No, cruise. The cruise. Yeah, the cruise. What's the upper limit performance of that engine in terms of horsepower and torque? Well, I, uh, I'm not going, if I give the upper limit of the performance, I'd have to start getting into some of the next generation modifications. But uh, if you look at uh, turbocharged engines in general, if they're, if they're port fuel injected, uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 to 100 horsepower per liter would be the, the upper limit. If you get into direct injection, 130 horsepower per, limit, uh, per liter has already been out there since 2007. Um, I, I want to, we got a lot of questions about the Pontiac G8. All and John of, will answer and, those questions. Well, no, I, you know, first question, <laughs> what's amazing about the G8, it triggered that, Bob, what's the question? Because it's, we heard from Fritz, we heard from Bob, but what is the product, Zarth? And what do you think about the G8? How hard is it to, to, to let that product go uh, at the time where it seemed like there was a tipping point in terms of, of consumer awareness and demand for that product. Well, there's still a lot of discussion inside the company where uh, we're deciding what we want to do with products like the G8 you know, as we speak. And as soon as those decisions have been made, they're going to be shared with everybody. But Share them with uh, us first. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that uh, that would go So it's not dead. Well. I mean, you're still talking about what you're going to do with that. We're uh, not as a G8. What we're talking mm -hmm, about right. is the Zeta platform right. that we have in Australia. Is there room for vehicles off of that Zeta platform in the U.S.? And those are the discussions we're currently having. Well, you're building the Camaro, which is built off the Zeta in, in Canada. And you just told us about how you're having to put overtime on. I mean, yep. same platform. Couldn't you put uh, that platform in there and design it as what everyone's talking about, uh, Impala SS? Yeah. Oh, could we do it? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Technology-wise, it's not a problem. Uh, Manufacturing-wise, it's not a problem. It's more of a business issue, mm -hmm. and we just have to decide uh, uh, where to use our capital and where to use our engineering resources. Well, uh, briefly, if I can follow up on that, you know, now By that... By the way, I love it that you guys are pushing so hard for our vehicle, well. vehicles we brought out. You know, that's really a good sign. I hope people are picking up on that. It's a great car. The fact well, that you guys are literally I, 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 saying, I had to get in one when it. we were writing about it. I had to go get in one. And, and you know the I thing no that I like? I can, I can name a dozen vehicles that are just like that. If we tried to take them off the market, you would be all over us because everything that we've brought out since 2006, I'll tell you, it's just been a terrific, a terrific success. 
We've got another uh, phone call here, uh, and uh, a freelancer, auto freelancer from Flemington, New Jersey. Ben, let's patch that one in. I just have a question for Tom Stevens. Will there be a Chevy Cruze Coupe, and if so, when? Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about... uh, uh the next uh, automobile off the cruise on this show. Uh, um, even that means there is one. <laughs> e- even if I knew, I wouldn't be. Uh, I wouldn't be okay, uh, sharing that a, with a you. A comment from or a question from Alex in the chat room. When is the the cruise going to come to market? Well, it should be in uh, in twenty. What is it? Twenty ten. Okay, next year. To, yeah, I have to go. I always have to go back and look. I have so many introductions. I know, because you're fact, about there, five years ahead of that there, in your thinking. Yeah, now, right? I think we have even 24 in the next uh, two two years. Now we need to answer so, the ones you're pulling ahead. So, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, as we look at the um, the profitability of some of uh, some of our products, pulling ahead makes some mm-hmm. sense. And quite frankly, some things are so attractive that aren't even in the program. We'll be adding some products, mm-hmm. and so some very exciting products that I'm anxious to talk about, but can't do it right now. But to me, it's it's just fantastic to be able to to sit here and know about a lot of these things that we have that uh, that we're going to bring out. Okay, Brett it's, wants to know when will the C7 Corvette get a class competitive interior and you guys have fixed up the Corvette interior a lot but it needs a total redo to get it done right in my opinion uh, the last time I was in the design studio and looked at what they're going to do for the interior it was world-class and so shortly shortly okay. yes. <laughs> again I know everybody would like to have it right down to the month and day but the fact of the matter is uh, we have made significant improvements over time in the Corvette interior. It's a lot better than it ever was, and we're continuing to make improvements. Chubba, what do you make of GM's interiors overall these days, the new stuff? Well, the new stuff is, is, is actually pretty terrific. And, uh, you know, it goes back to the previous discussion we had. I mean, starting about two years ago, every GM product that's come out has had merit. And uh, some of them have been class leaders, some of them haven't, but they've all been worth considering. And this is a real change from 10 years ago when a new GM product would roll out and we'd look around in the office and say, I think it's dead on arrival. I mean, the day it shows up. I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, I hate yeah. to say that. Like, and, uh, but uh, the, Isn't that old GM? Well, no, that, that was the old GM yeah. 10 years ago. But, yeah. I mean, this has really changed right now. And, uh, you know, your challenge is to continue this. And, uh, and it's also to... One of the questions I want to get to uh, earlier was when we talk about the G8 and you mentioned you're trying to figure out where it fits in. Now that the company is down to four distinct brands, have you guys developed clear product statements for each of those four brands? So, you know, when you're trying to think of what does a Chevrolet need to be versus a Buick, that that's an easy definition not only for you, but for everybody who works for you when they have to make a decision, how do I decide how to make this product a proper Chevrolet? or GMC or whatever. Do you have those definitions? Yes, we are. We are working on those definitions. And probably the one that, that uh, comes up most often is Buick versus Cadillac and what you're going after. And rather than definition, I think uh, example is the easiest way to look at that one. The Buick would be targeted more at the Lexus and and um, the kind of characteristics you have, drive characteristics and, and uh, look and feel of the Lexus, whereas the Cadillac would be more Mercedes, BMW in terms of the ability uh, 
to have the ride dynamics of a BMW as well as all of the uh, the attributes of a, of a Cadillac for uh, for the luxury buyer. Um, getting back though to interiors, uh, just an anecdote. When we were all out at the Milford Proving Grounds driving cars after we looked at uh, looked at them in Design Center, I had at least a half a dozen of the press people. I told them, listen, interior-wise, just go over and sit in that cruise, and I guarantee you when you come back, you're going to say, wow. You are going to say, boy, you really set a new benchmark for interior. And virtually everyone that I talked to came back and said, that's really terrific. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we, we are going to the next level on our, our interiors and really proud of it. What about some product features? Uh, uh, things like, uh, and this is, it's simple little stuff, but like Bluetooth connectivity and iPod connectivity. Companies like Kia are making this standard across the board in their cars. You know, even the cheapest Kia, you can uh, connect your Bluetooth phone. Is this something, a direction you guys would consider going in the future? Absolutely. In fact, we just introduced the, tr uh, the terrain um, last week, and it had Bluetooth, and it was able to, you'd bring And it's standard? Your, uh, yeah, across the board. Yeah, you can you can bring your uh, your music with you and just plug it in and, and uh, play all day long. So yeah, that is something that we intend to move forward with. And I got to say too, myself and test driving a lot of your cars lately, it's it's pretty easy to sync up your phone Bluetooth wise with GM products. A lot of cars I get in and it's, you know, you got to get out the manual to figure it out. That's your, a very good point. Easy. In our interior design, uh, when it comes to just the infotainment, one of the things we look at is, hey, we don't want to get Get, uh, you know more buttons on there and, and, and uh, you have to get the manual out to be able to figure out how to use it we've really been trying to uh, have a, kind of a combination we want it simple so it's intuitive to use but we also want to have enough functionality so the people who are into that level of functionality can go deeper if they choose to but you don't have to go deep when you're driving down the road you just want to change uh, you know blower speed or the volume on the radio or tune it you don't have to sit there and go through a series of buttons. You'll be able to do it much quicker. And so we're trying to factor that into uh, into the vehicles going forward. We're the perfect testers on that because we often get new products right that now. don't have owner's manuals. And uh, <laughs> so you have to figure out how to do this without any benefit of instruction. And uh, that gets to be pretty interesting sometimes. I mean, uh, almost all of them depend on some form of voice activation. And you're thinking, is, is set up the good starting command or is it or is it this or that? And I've spent a half hour on some cars uh, before I figured out the combination, and that's clearly unacceptable. Well, the thing we wanted was safety, uh, you know, while you're driving, so that most of the major things that you'd want to do are right there and very easily um, uh, worked and, and, and adjusted. But uh, there are other things we do know that we have a, a certain segment of the population who likes to get into the de detail, likes to be able to make it do more than is expected, and, and it's there. We just, uh, we just don't make you do it that way all the time. So that's a, a direction that we're moving uh, in today. Okay, here's another uh, question from the tech chat room from Mark. Is this Is one to John? No, this is to you. It I says, take it for you. Well, yeah, yeah you, you might uh, want to weigh in on this, too. Can you expli please explain why GMC and Chevy trucks both exist when most of their products are very similar? Is it just because Buick dealers need trucks to sell? Yeah, wh 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 why have the one Buick line? Buick dealers need trucks to well, sell? Well, Buick GMC, okay. you know, that, that's what he's getting at. Uh, the trucks, uh, per se, are not the same. You, you have... Uh, 
very unique sheet metal on, on uh, the GMC trucks. They have a very distinctive look. On the interior, you have uh, premium materials and things of that nature. But I think the real telling thing is just the customer. And the customer that buys, say, a GMC pickup, he is not, for second choice, is not going to a Chevrolet pickup. He, it's not either or there. In fact, that customer is after a GMC professional grade pickup. And in fact, we feel the same thing is going to be true on Acadia and uh, in the new terrain that we're launching. And so it's, it makes a lot of sense for us to have that GMC brand, which has been around a long time and is one of the clearest defined brands that we have in the industry. I hear GMC is the most profitable brand at GM. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but it is very profitable. But I, I, I That's why you guys told the task force, we're not getting rid of that brand, because they had said, what the hell you got these two truck divisions that, for, right? Uh, we told the task force why we needed the GMC brand, and it did revolve around profitability. You are correct. It did bring up a question that you said something earlier, got my wheels turning on uh, this, the answer to Buick and Cadillac, one going more after Lexus, one going into it, it to the outsider who has always sort of felt the brand portfolio was was too big um it still leads to the question of are those competitors bmw lexus mercedes having to do the same work that you're having to do or do they just go after each other with one brand and make that brand world class uh you know lexus has lexus that goes after beam i don't you know do they have to game plan well you know we have this other brand that goes after these these brands and then we have this you know what i'm saying i mean it feels like you've got a little bit too much complexity left in the new gm how are how are you feeling about that challenge and 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 why is this strategy right to keep buick uh, when it feels like a lot of that lifting could be done on a global basis by Cadillac, other than Buick being in China, obviously, this is a big asset for you. <laughs> well, I think you answered yeah. uh, part of your question at the end there. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to sell 400,000 Buicks in China. Right. And, and here the, in the, the, US. Buick, yeah. the Buick design, uh, which has is, is got that uh, beautiful sweep spear, the waterfall grill, the, the, uh, the smooth features, uh, that's very different than the more edgy design, the more expressive design that we have in Cadillac. And the ride between the two, the ride and handling, steering, the feel in, in the car is much different. Just the same way a Mercedes feels a lot different than a Lexus when you drive it. And I think there are customers for both. Mm -hmm. And so I think it makes really good sense for us to do great Buicks and it makes sense for us to do great Cadillacs. In fact, uh, going from eight to four brands I think was the right thing to do. And I think four brands makes a lot of sense on a global level for, for General Motors. Going from about 50 down to 34 nameplates made a lot, lot of sense for us. So I think we're at the right level. I'm able to concentrate concentrate more of my resource to make to pull more nameplates and and uh, better products off of those brands and that's exactly what my job is to do more faster and but the key is to make everyone a home run every product i'm accountable for making sure that every product that we deliver is a home run on that uh, Cadillac uh, Buick thing, there's also the price point difference. And uh, to some extent, that reflects the Lexus, BMW, Mercedes thing, because by and large, Lexus is still a little bit less expensive than the Germans. Uh, it seems like in, in Buick, you're certainly a little less expensive than Cadillac and maybe by a bigger increment, and you're trying to do a bargain Lexus. I mean, is that kind of the strategy? Uh, 
Uh, I think if you drive the, Le the Lexus and then drive the Buick, which we do all the time, and, I'm, and you do as well because we, we have them out there at the drives, um, you can evaluate parameter after parameter. Uh, you know, and, and almost everything that you look at, the Buick is equal or better than, than the Lexus. So I think we've got a better car, and yes, it is a better value because it is a little less expensive. But uh, that's part of the comment I made early on, and we're trying to always have more than you expect. We're trying to thrill you, delight you, please you when you find out what a terrific car, beyond the design, what a terrific car you get, and it's at this price, like an Equinox. Mm. People are saying, boy, you ask them how much you think that should cost, Invariably, they, they give you a much higher number than what we have, what we're charging for it. So it's it's always more than expected, and I think that's going to be a, a real win for General Motors going forward. In uh, one of the things that was just announced, personnel policies at GM, G all GM employees were encouraged to rent General Motors vehicles when they travel. And we had a question came in that said, "Hey, wouldn't it be smarter to have them get in competitors' vehicles? They already know what the GM vehicles are like." Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to comment uh, comment on the policy. I don't let my guys take vacations. We're too busy. <laughs> no, just, <laughs> just, just kidding. But, Here's another but one. Yeah, we, by the way, we do uh, uh, several things that I think are very important. Not only do we want our, our folks to drive GM vehicles, but we're trying to get them to drive uh, older GM vehicles, high-mileage GM vehicles, because quality, reliability, and durability are all important to our customers. And so we just don't want you in a brand new vehicle all the time, but we would like to to, uh, to make sure you experience the high mileage, mileage. And then a lot of our folks, not enough, but a lot of our folks get exposed to uh, the competitors. Okay, we were going to wrap up this discussion at the top of the hour, which we're almost at right now, but we've been given the blessing to keep going because things are really rolling and we just learned we don't have to cut you loose just this second. So we're going to go on a little bit longer really? on this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've, been, I've been given the high sign here that it's okay to do that. Uh, it never does that for me when yeah, I have yeah. an interview. It's always time. We just got a call from yeah. Fritz. He's got to be back. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. Okay, here's a, a, a question from a guy named Peterson from Scottsdale, Arizona. This is, is about the Tim full... Peterson? Uh, it's an S. Peterson. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know where he's going with this, but maybe you will. He says, is GM planning to fight the artificial inflation of the Volt's price by $10,000 or so merely to meet a CARB warranty requirement, CARB being California Air Resources Board, a requirement for a 150,000-mile warranty on the batteries, which this uh, guy says... Plugins have to meet it. Extended range EVs like the Volt have to meet it, but uh, hybrid electrics and battery electrics don't have to meet that. Uh, so is, is that why? It, are, are you aware of this, of the, the Volt batteries having to meet a 150,000-mile warranty? Uh, Calif California, California Air Resources Board does have a very stringent warranty requirement. Uh, and rather than fight CARB, uh, we've taken the other approach, and that's that we've brought batteries inside as core technology. We've just put up the largest battery lab in the world, and we are doing a lot of testing to be able to improve the battery life, improve the durability, and that's exactly what's happening right now. We're learning a lot, and, and uh, 
uh, up front here, because we want that battery life, what we're doing is uh, if you have, say, uh, 16 kilowatt hours available to you in the battery, we're only using half or 8 kilowatt hours because we know that treating the battery uh, that way will significantly extend its durability. The, the key here, though, I believe, is to learn what causes durability failures, fix those through technology, and then be able to, rather than use 50, use 60, use 70, use 80% of the battery and still have the life. And then you can use a much smaller battery, so you have a much lighter vehicle, a lower cost vehicle going forward. So that's what we're doing. And when I always refer to, hey, I've got to get through the first and second generation of technology, it's those kind of things that I'm referring to. We're going to get a lot smarter, and as we get smarter, the cost of power electronics, the cost of batteries, the cost of electric motors, all that's going to go down and become more affordable. So this uh, warranty is, is a key factor why the batteries are so expensive right now. Yes, warranty is a key factor, and, and because we don't want our customers having to change the battery uh, as well, we're, we're in there only using 50% of the total capability. There, there's a follow-up here, too, that ties in with this. It says, uh, what is GM finding is a practical three-sigma life expectancy for the Volt batteries at this stage of development? 75,000 miles, 100,000, 120, or what? Well, I, what we're shooting for is the life of the vehicle. So in that's, what, 150,000? We're we're, uh, I'm not going to give you a mileage number right now because we're learning so much every day on, on what we're doing. So uh, I would tell you that uh, well over 100,000 miles. <laughs> One more quick Volt-related question. <clears throat> and maybe I haven't done my research on this, but what is the procedure by which you guys came up with the 200-plus mile per gallon uh, fuel economy figure? And I understand it's EPA sanctioned, that it's not something that came out of whole cloth, but I'm trying to figure out what energy equivalency or whatever was used to derive that figure. Well, we can, if you want to get into <clears throat> the approach that was taken, it was merely following the procedure that, that the EPA shared with us. We just took the procedure and followed it. And it would uh, go in and say, how much of your time in the city do they expect that you'll be running all electric? And then what is the cost of energy in the city? And then how much of the time on the highway is all electric? And then you have different amounts, electric versus running off of the, the engine generator. And then you run those two and you get your city and highway numbers. Uh, and you also have to talk about, you know, how many kilowatt hours you use, et cetera. Um, we did nothing more than follow the process. I can give you line-by-line line detail of that. I haven't memorized that. Okay. But I did go through that before we before we uh, brought forward and said this is I would the actually like to see it because I'm not sure that line-by-line line detail has been released by the EPA and uh, and it's just curious and I'm not no, trying to throw a, stones at it you know it's uh, just it's, it's an interesting number and one would like to know where it came from and uh, <clears throat> EPA has been trying very hard to do what makes the most sense in other words follow the physics of the situation sure. and, and put that out and you have to remember it's that, a difficult that, case uh, obviously well, that's the that, first time ever and it's a draft proposal and yeah. I expect that there will be changes in it over time, but in general, we wanted to, to kind of give you a benchmark for where we were at today, and using that, that's why we, we shared the number. Hey, Tom, uh, on the Volt, uh, talking to uh, 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 an executive at another auto company in Detroit um, who had sort of suggested to me that the, the money that's being given out for battery research may be entering, going to too many 
battery companies, too many companies that are, would it have been a better philosophy to get uh, Chrysler, GM, Ford in a room and say, you know, where do we put this money so the three of you can collaborate and, and make the U.S. the winner or at least help the U.S. catch up when it comes to battery technology, the most recent money that, that the D, uh, DOE is putting out, I believe. I mean, do you, I mean, Tesla's getting all this money or, you know, on down the line, you know, there's this whole basket full of companies. I mean, does there need to be more collaboration encouraged uh, by this administration to get, to accelerate? Well, let me first start by saying that at all of the OEMs, um, whereas 10 years ago you'd never hear of collaboration, collaboration is well, almost... it's called the, collusion. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's almost the, the, the normal way we do business. We, uh, Ford and GM started it on six-speed front-wheel drive transmissions way back when, and uh, we had a great partnership and still do. On, on the transmissions. Uh, we worked with uh, people on, on the hybrid programs, as, as you're also aware, there are several partnerships that we have. And so as we work, especially advanced propulsion technology, which is quite expensive, we tend to look for partners and, and tend to do it together right from the get-go. When it comes to the electrification of the automobile, basically rather than look at it uh, nameplate by nameplate uh, or brand by brand, we stepped back and said, what's different between conventional and the electrification? And it's in four areas. You have a difference in batteries, power electronics, electric motors, and then the control system to make it all work. Those are the four things. And so we have brought those four things core in-house in because they were so important. And then if you happen to be very, very capable on those four core technologies, whether you want to do a belt alternator starter, a flywheel alternator starter, a two-mode, a four-mode, whether you want to do a plug-in hybrid, an extended range electric vehicle, a battery electric vehicle, you can use that fundamental knowledge, first principles knowledge, and it apply to any one of these. And also, by thinking of it this way, you can speed up your generations of learning. So that's the approach General Motors is taking, and, and we do that. And so we'll partner with, with almost any company where it's a win-win situation, but where we also are able to make sure we have that intellectual property, that knowledge, so that we can then apply that uh, when we have to come high volume with the electrification of the automobile. Mm. Given the stakes, though, should, the, should, the, uh, should they be throwing money at the Teslas of the world right now? Uh, I would say the competition is always a, a reasonable thing to do so that you, you, they should look for competition out there because everybody works better and works harder when there is competition, even the people who design our products up front. I'm not going to pass judgment on, on Tesla or any singular uh, person here. I'm just going to say that I happen to be for competition. Oh, that's a good answer. Hey, we've got another phone call coming in from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Ben, let's bring that in. NASCAR. Uh, yes, this question is uh, to Mr. Stevens. Uh, when will the uh, small block V8s go to uh, direct fuel injection? Thank you very much. Uh, we have not announced that yet. Well, here's uh, your opportunity, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like it's coming. I, I would say yes. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's going to be across the board at some say, point, right? Yeah, if you look at uh, small blocks, gas engines, uh, really they're, 
they're very good at meeting emissions and, and they've got to, what we've got to do is improve their fuel economy. And the big technologies, I think, are going to be direct injection. It's going to be um, active fuel management where you can make that small block rather than run on, on eight cylinders, it'll run on four cylinders. And we're, we're going to operate on four cylinders a lot more of the time in our new applications. And then variable valve timing. We need to use more uh, variable valve timing. So those technologies, you're going to see them roll across. Uh, our engines in the near future. What about other stuff? I mean, uh, HCCI, homogeneous charge compression ignition, where you make a gas engine behave like a diesel? Yes. What we're doing on, uh, on HCCI is we're developing that technology, and, and that technology requires certain uh, other technologies to be on the vehicle. Um, it would be like direct injections required to run HCCI. Variable valve timing is required. Variable valve lift is required. You need an in-cylinder pressure sensor. That's required. And then each one of these will give you a certain amount of fuel economy improvement. But the synergistic effect of all of these like doubles the improvement. So by going to HCCI, Using these technologies, it's looking like about a 15% improvement. And so we're working very hard. We need the 15%. And uh, to make that happen, um, you know, we're trying to get to a position where we can use it over a broader operating range. It used to be a very small range. And now it's all the way down to idle. And we're the first company that's been able to show that we can run it at idle. And all the way up to about... 55 miles an hour, depending on the mass and the arrow of the vehicle. I would say I've got to get that range up to maybe 80 miles an hour, 75, 80. And if I can do that, then we're ready to say it's, it's time to take it into uh, high volume, higher volume production. Given that uh, one of the biggest challenges of HCCI is what you just described, getting it to operate over a broader mode. Yes. Uh, wouldn't an HCCI engine uh, being used as the range extender in a Volt be a pretty easy application? Because there you could design the engine to operate on a relatively narrow mode. After all, it only has to run a, uh, uh, a generator or an alternator at a relatively fixed RPM uh, where everything is most efficient. Does that not make sense as an early application of HCCI? Uh, yes, it does. And, and there are several powertrains that could make sense. Uh, and, and we have to compare all of these. HCCI is one. Running the absolute smallest, lightest Powertrain is another one that you'd look at where you run it, you make it so small and so light that it's actually wide open. Well, Lotus uh, just released something at the uh, Frankfurt show where it was something like 125 pounds, uh, including the alternator. Uh, what was it, three cylinder and yep. 750 cc's or so, but yep. running pretty hard. And, uh, but it's that kind of thing that I was referring to. I mean, you can even get to different technology sure. should it be a... You know, should it be a Stirling engine? Should it be a gas turbine? You know, should it be this, that, or the next thing? So we, uh, we have not uh, sorted out all of those things yet, but they're all viable alternatives. What about diesels? We get a lot of questions about diesels as well. As you know, diesels are very important to General Motors. Heck, right now I have a 1.3 liter. I have a 1.7 liter, a 1.9 liter, 2 liter, a 3 liter, and a 6.6 .6 liter. Uh, so they, they make a lot of sense. And a 4.4 that hasn't come into production, right? 4.5. 4.5. 4.5 okay. liter. 4.4 is Ford. Oh. Uh, at least that's what I've been told. <laughs> uh, what, uh, at least it was at one point, maybe yeah. uh, they, uh, they might be looking at uh, Cummins right now. Um, I would say that uh, 
where the standards, uh, the emission standards allow, uh, they still make a lot of sense, and that would mainly be in Europe. As the standards get tighter and tighter, and specifically for NOx and particulates, where I'm forced into putting what I term a chemical factory underneath the vehicle, the cost of that chemical factory, on top of the additional cost for the diesel engine, and then when I trade off that system and look at the cost of diesel fuel versus gasoline, it tends not to make uh, economic sense for the customer base, and that's when we back off. So we're trying to get to a, a more reasonable business case, and. Uh, as, as the price of fuel goes up, obviously the business case will uh, potentially get better looking if diesel happens to be lower cost than gasoline. I, if. That's yeah. a big if, though. Well, there's another factor on that, too, that I seem to be the only one who ever talks about, and that is that there's kind of a shortage of diesel fuel in the, on the globe compared to gasoline, and there's no easy fix for that. So, you know, some people say if the U.S. were all diesel, our, our crude oil consumption would go down. It would actually no, go up it would because go up. Uh, we get way less uh, diesel out of a uh, barrel of oil than we get gasoline, and the refineries can't change that. Well, yeah, you're right, but that depends on how you build your uh, refinery. But there is one... Well, yeah, yeah, but w since we're not in... The since we haven't built any refineries in 20 years, the refineries are fixed. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's no how we build them. You know, that's For one okay. thing, biodiesel, and that's a way where you could start extending 5, 10, 20 percent. Mm -hmm. You know, wouldn't that make a difference? It does make a difference. So we already have 5 percent, but what we need is some regulations on the 20 percent. I mean, if it's French fry oil versus peanut oil versus uh, you know, soybean oil or sunflower oil or whatever, you need to know what oils they're going to have in there so you're able to validate the vehicle. And so if we were to get regulations, it would help us be able to validate and then, then increase the percentage. We're, we're going to wrap up here uh, fairly quickly, but here's a uh, question from Jeff who says, what's GM's answer to EcoBoost from Ford? He said, GM had turbos even in the 80s with cars like the Buick Grand Nationals. He says, when I pull up to a stoplight to race against an eco-boosted Taurus, what are you going to give me? Uh, you say, what's our answer to, to EcoBoost? Well, the 80s, you, did, you had uh, typically multi-port fuel injection and then a, then a turbocharger. Okay, uh, EcoBoost would have direct injection. It would have variable valve timing, and it would have turbocharging, and there's a synergistic effect between those. Uh, I've had that whole setup out since uh, 2007. I've got it on the Sky. I had it on the Sky. I have it on the Solstice. I've got it on the HHR, the Cobalt. Uh, so uh, we've already been out there on several applications. So we have uh, the equivalent of what they would call EcoBoost today and have had it for quite some time. And we'll continue to, uh, on some applications, make a small engine look large with, uh, with a turbocharged, direct-injected, variable-valve-timed engines. Other engines uh, where you have a lot of utility required, a lot of heavy towing, a lot of heavy hauling, I'll use a larger displacement engine and make it look small when you're not towing hauling by running on four cylinders rather than eight because some of the protection modes required with turbocharging some of those protection modes tend to reduce your fuel economy significantly because you're trying to protect the pistons as well as the catalytic converter and so you get into these modes uh, uh, say on hot weather towing up hills and things of that nature where the fuel economy isn't as good as you'd like it 
With that, we're going to have to wrap it up. We, we have a zillion more questions here that we're not able to get to. I think we could do this all day long. So you're going to give me a homework assignment? Well, well we are. Actually, we'll, we're, we're going to take all your questions. We're going to give them to Tom. At least he can look at them. I don't know if they're going to come up with answers for everything, but they can see what all you guys I'm ask I'm going to give about. some to John and some to Chuck. <laughs> uh, but again, you know, uh, if you like what you saw, check us out. We do this uh, every Sunday on AutoLine Detroit. We do our seven-minute webcast daily at AutoLine AutoLineDaily.com. We also do our live one, AutoLine After Hours, Thursday nights. We've got to uh, absolutely thank GM Inside News for carrying this today. Also, GMVolt.com and Autoblog.com. Great having you all here. But Tom Stevens, thanks so much for coming in. This has been terrific. Always really a pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you for inviting me. And John Stoll, Wall Street Journal, great having you here. Chubba Chetta, great having you here too.